You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Full disclosure, I've wanted to speak to this week's guest for a long time. Almost five years ago, I read this personal narrative in Essence Magazine, written by Dr. Natasha gordon Champere, as to why her family relocated to Central America. Her article led me to believe she would have a great story to tell. So I decided then that she was someone I wanted to track down. So I did, and I found her. In the process, I not only met Natasha, who shares her story of growing up in an immigrant household in New York City, but I also meet her singer, songwriter, and musical producer husband, Masauko. Masauko, who grew up in California, is the son of two prominent political activists who had to flee in exile from their native Malawi in the late 60s during a time of revolution and resistance. As you can imagine, he also had a story to tell. So here you get to hear the intertwined journey of the Brooklyn woman who meets an LA musician while they both happen to be in South Africa and how their histories, identities, and cultures led them to leaving their American lives for a more secure one in Costa Rica. Welcome to The Chatter. So I am super excited for this interview, and I'm glad that both of you are are joining in today because individually, I think you have really amazing stories, and I think collectively, <laughs> you've got a great story. And and as I've said in the intro, um, this is a story that I've wanted to do for a while, and I, I'm glad that I, I've I've gotten you on the on the on the podcast. So. As we as we kick it off, so tell me, Natasha, tell me a little bit about your cross cultural um, background. First, thank you so much, Amanda, for having us on. I'm always excited to t- to share this particular story of journey, right? Journey by choice, yeah, right, not by force. Yeah, 
Um, so I was born in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and my dad's from Panama. My mom's Costa Rican mm-hmm. and I grew up um, in do or die bed but interestingly <laughs> enough, in, um, in a brownstone, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I grew up with my Panamanian family and I was mm-hmm. thinking about this the other day. I grew up with my, um, my paternal grandparents and my cousins and an aunt in that house so there it was like a four-story house and we all had individual apartments but we it was sort of an open door policy right and we had a ba- I had a backyard and swings and we grew tomatoes I mean it's very I don't know 1970s Brooklyn possibly I don't know but what was happening in the front of the house and on the streets were, were it was a radically different experience that what was happening in the backyard and particularly because my parents are immigrants my mom Mom's um, a retired Spanish professor. My dad worked as a manager, as a night manager at the post office. So he had a really good sort of steady government job. Um, what ended up happening was my parents really, they worked really hard, but they didn't necessarily have the language of raising first-generation children in the United States, right? And particularly um, raising children in sort of the racialized 1970 world that I was born into. Um, I'm the darkest skinned person in my family. And so my particular experience as radically different from my brother and sister um, and even my parents who came to the United States as... um, who came to the United States as immigrants, as adult immigrants, um, they, my experience was, was totally different. And so what I realized very quickly, because I had very negative racial experiences as a child, what I ended up um, doing was finding a safe place. And the safest place for me um, was the world of books. And so I was the person who went all the time to the, the library once a week. I was a ferocious and a ferocious reader. And I continued to to be in that world. And I think that really formed my identity, my love of language. And I, you know, I hear people say all the time, oh, I never, when I read, I didn't find myself in books. But I was not brought up in a sense of you needed to look for a, a, a racialized understanding of yourself in books. Mm. I just read books and usually it was sort of the strong female character mm-hmm. or the world that I was being taken into because my parents didn't let us out on the street. We mm-hmm. very much lived in that neighborhood. We lived, we, we studied, we went to school, we socialized outside of the neighborhood, right? And so mm-hmm. I went to um, private all girls Catholic school in mm-hmm. another, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. So it was, it was a very white environment. Um, and then ultimately I went to university um, in predominantly white in institutions, right? And so for me, it was the world of books that that really shaped my identity and my love and my professional career now as uh, as a professor of literature, as someone, uh, as a writer, you know, someone who engages with language and loves language. Um, And so I guess for me, in terms of the cross-cultural identity, even though I grew up in a Panamanian family in in that house, I very Mm. much was socialized with my Costa Rican family. So Mm. that means we came to Costa Rica often, you know, and we'd come to see my grandmother in the summertime or my grandmother would come to us. And then like the major events, so family reunions were all on the Costa Rican side of the family. And we spent Christmas and we, you know, I mean, if we were spending Christmas in Costa Rica, that was a huge deal, you know, the 
you had to buy a small gift for every single family member. I mean, it was a thing, you know, my sweet 15, my quinceanera, I had it in Costa Rica. So these oh, were cool. all major sort of cultural um, markers and like identity markers for me that um, really shaped why it makes sense for me to sort of come back to Costa Rica now. Mm. All right. So then we've, you've kind of laid the background with your story. And so we're going to turn it to your husband and, and Masoko, can you tell us your identity story? Um, my story must start with Malawi. My parents are both from Malawi in mm -hmm. Southern Africa. Um, they came to the United States uh, a couple times, but they for, for good in 1969 in an exile situation. Mm -hmm. um, my father was a revolutionary Pan-Africanist who was at the forefront of the struggle to remove the British from um, colonial rule in what was then Nyasa land and became mm -hmm. Malawi when they were successful. Mm. Unfortunately, he ended up in conflict with Malawi's first leader, first president, Kamuzu Banda, who ended up being somewhat of a dictator. And um, my father led a coup against him that was unsuccessful. And from that wow. time onward, there was no love between these men, <laughs> which meant my father had to flee into exile and eventually um, landed in the United States, 69. I was born in 1970, actually conceived in Tanzania where they'd been and then born in Los Angeles um, when they landed. So I feel that that's kind of the, the center of my identity is it's, I'm an in-between person. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. And so I grew up in a way where our there was an intellectual quality to my household because my father was actually, he had been the minister of education in the country <laughs> where he came from. Uh, yet and still, we lost everything when mm -hmm. we came to the States. So we were in what I would call a hood, uh -huh. yeah. but we had a family with a certain kind of African intellect going on. So there was always this juxtaposition between existing amongst, um, you know, working class Latinos, uh, yeah. working class black people, working class white people, Armenians, all sorts of different folks. And yeah. then sort of coming uh, a middle class sort of intellectual reality in my house. And like Natasha, I was sent to very um, good, but white private schools. Um, and I feel like a lot of my identity is, um, sits in this space where I kind of lived amongst, I, I think, I feel like this is a blessing because I was with poor working class people of all races, um, yeah. folks on welfare and so forth. And then I, I went to school with people whose parents drove Ferraris and lived in mansions and so forth. So yeah. I got to see a large uh, diversity of the society in the United States. And my first identity inside of myself was as an American, because I really didn't know much about the history of Malawi. And my father died when I was very young. So I wasn't really brought into that story. It was a bit of a painful story in our household. Yeah. Which meant we just kind of dealt with where we were. Um, what was very significant is because my father was uh, enemies of the leader of Malawi, um, there was, it was illegal for Malawians to visit Los Angeles. So <laughs> wow. I, yeah. I never met Malawians growing up. And mm. so the story became really 
ethereal and far off to me. It wasn't something that was very present in my reality, but I think I'm a musician primarily, and I am a musician. Um, I think that happened primarily because it was a way to try to relate to everybody Mm -hmm. and to understand um, all of it because I love music anywhere it came from. And it sort of became the language that allowed me to connect to people in different communities everywhere. So what I think is really fascinating, um, and I'm going to ask you a follow-up question because I'm, I was listening to what Natasha was saying. Did you, during your formative years, ever go to the continent? No, I did not. It was, uh, we, we were in a situation where we could have been killed for doing that. So okay. none of us came anywhere near the continent um, between the time that I was born and until I was in my mid-20s when okay. the dictator actually was pushed out of power and then passed away. And then my mom became part of that government that Mm -hmm. pushed out the dictator. My father had passed, but she continued the struggle. Mm -hmm. And when she went back, I followed her. Gotcha. And, and I think that's real interesting comparison to Natasha's experience where with your identity, you at least you came to Costa Rica as a, at least as a young woman. And as a child, did you go to Panama as well? No, I've, I've never formally been in, into Panama. I've only been there as layovers. No, actually, that's not true. I think my dad took me when I was really little at one point, um, possibly. That, that's like a vague memory of a conversation, but it must have been like at age three. But I have never formally gone to Panama. It's something that I want. My daughter really, really wants to go to Panama. Um, and it's definitely something on the bucket list. You know, um, as far as I know, we don't have any relatives there, you know, but Mm -hmm. my brother has gone with my father and they have sort of done journeys. And my mother has gone back with my father as well. But they're based in New York. And the reason I ask that is so this thing about identity, especially that I find talking with with folks who are first gen you know, for some folks, they get to a certain point where they want to learn more of the story, right? Like it's just, there's a pull there, you know, that you have a, a family tie there. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, even though you're growing up in Los Angeles, how did you see, you mentioned you saw yourself as American. Did you see yourself also as African or it's someone inter- from, Malawi, from Malawi? Go ahead. It's interesting how that came upon me. Honestly, um, I grew up in the hip hop generation. Um, <laughs> like I was, I was 10 years old in 1980 when hip hop was really starting. And then by 1988, when it was really peaking, I was 18 years old. And at the time, the messaging in the hip hop became very pro-black and pro-Africa with groups like Public Enemy and the Jungle Brothers and everybody was Trap Called Quest. So there was this and, you know, this concept of knowledge of self came into a lot of the music. There was an intellectual aspect to the hip hop at that point. It wasn't all as commercial as it is right now. Yeah. And um, so the questions that kept popping up about, you know, we came from Africa and, you know, w- you know, <laughs> we are we have this identity. You got to know yourself. All of those things kind of started ringing in my ears along with. But wait a minute. My parents came from Africa. So. <laughs> What am I doing if I have the ability to go and actually see what this is? And it sort of culminated at a perfect time um, in my life because what happened was it was like post Rodney King in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles. Mm -hmm. And 
I was done. Like I was done with the racial reality of the United States at that point. I couldn't take any more. I was at that moment that James Baldwin talks about when there's a scene that James Baldwin had in one of his books where he's in a bar and the bartender says something and he throws something and it smashes the glass behind the bartender. And James Baldwin realizes I'm just angry. Like I did not need to do that. And I'm reacting now to everything through my anger. And I realized I don't get out of here. I'm going to get in trouble because I'm done with this. And so I removed myself and followed my mom who had in, in the early nineties gone back to Malawi, as I mentioned. And that was really the pull was somewhere between the hip hop consciousness that had been raised in me in terms of Africa. And then also the Rodney King event made me done. I needed to see something else. Gotcha. So then if I flip it to you, Natasha, how did you see your identity? Did you see yourself? Did you feel like it was a formalized Afro Latina? Did you feel like you were black? Did you feel it was Costa Rican Panamanian? Where did you feel you were American? Like what was your identity feeling like at that point? Mm. Um, I've never called myself Afro-Latina. I've always called myself Black, even mm-hmm. though there are definitely spaces where I have been identified as an Afro-Latina and sort of embraced or welcomed into a community. Okay. Um, but in actuality, I, I am not Afro-Latina because my, my dad was Panamanian with Jamaican, like great grandparents. And so they're they're Afro-Caribbeans who became immigrants to work on the Panama Canal, to work on the railroads and banana Mm -hmm. plantations of Costa Rica on the Caribbean coast. So I very clearly understand myself, you know, ethnically as someone Mm -hmm. who is Jamaican of Jamaican um, descent and culture. Right. So I understand that my, you know, I mean, I grew up listening to sort of Limonense Creole, which is obviously deeply embedded in in uh, Jamaican uh, Creole mm-hmm. and and just the food and the way that we understand that even though all these things were happening in Spanish with the adults around me, <laughs> right? So my parents speak to each other in Spanish, but what was really interesting is that as, as their firstborn child, um, they put me in, you know, this private school when I, you know, for first grade, I mean, kindergarten. And I really spoke a lot more Spanish than I spoke English. And so I remember my mom telling the story of, you know, being called into the teacher by the teacher and saying, this is not an ESL situation. You have to stop speaking Spanish to your daughter. Right. And so interesting. So, you know, my parents as new immigrants into the United States absolutely felt, okay, well, you know, the teacher has said we have to stop speaking Spanish. And so that's what happened. I mean, pretty much. I we own, I spoke English, you know, if my parents, I mean, I understood enough so I could listen to like where they were going to hide the Christmas presents when they would speak <laughs> Spanish. Of but I, so, so I have never formally taken Spanish, but I mean, it's something that I understand I can read and write. And so one of the things that was really interesting for me was that in middle school, was it middle school? Uh, yeah, no, it was in high school, middle school, high school, um, menudo. Oh gosh! I know, I know, I know. I'm oh god! Documentary coming out on HBO. I can't believe it. Um, so, so that was sort of my entry into thinking about sort of Latinidad or whatever mm. that was in New York, because the the Puerto Rican sensation of Menudo drew me into a world where the music I sang was in Spanish. The albums we went to the Menuditi store. We, you know, I mean, so it was my sister and I and and um, another friend 
and we sort of just entered that world. And it was sort of the divide. It was really interesting because every it was also the time when other boy bands um, were happening. What was the the band um, New Edition? So yeah. if you were a New Edition fan or you were a Manuela fan? And I wow. have no shame. <laughs> And saying that I was a Manuela fan, but okay. sort of, so so I went I went down that road, and what had happened was it actually allowed me to to understand Spanish, and it didn't necessarily frame my identity as an Afro Latina, but it, yeah. it entered me into a particular community of Spanish speakers in New York City that I had never really been sort of inside of before. Um, but th- the other thing is that. Even going back and forth to Costa Rica, I still, it was still vacation. You know, it was still wasn't, I didn't live there. So it's not necessarily um, something that I necessarily claimed. I I didn't say I was American per se. I didn't, I just said I was black because that was really my experiences in the United States. And I think only when I went to Africa for the first time, um, as a, as an exchange, you know, during a junior junior year um, exchange program, I went to Kenya. Mm-hmm. It changed my life, and it, it radicalized the direction of my identity. Um, because I understood that when I was claiming blackness, I was claiming a deep diasporic, like trajectory connection, like ancestral, like it it it. it grounded me it put me in a place Mm -hmm. i think i have and i have walked that road since i landed in kenya in january 1991. so then i think you set it up nicely how did you guys meet and where did you meet (laughs) (laughs) they're pointing at each other different i think we have different versions but i love which is the best part this is the best part so so I'll, I'll, and we were talking about it just recently because we're trying to figure out dates. So the way it worked is that um, I had I had finished a master's degree at Columbia University and I was teaching. Um, I had I had lived in Kenya on a, a before the year before after I graduated from undergraduate. I had gone I got a research grant a Fulbright and mm-hmm. I went to Kenya and then I came back and I got a job and I started a master's at Columbia. And so when I um, at Columbia I did a class on South African historiography and I um, the 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 end of the project the end of the class was a major project where you had to interview um, a Southern African oral historian. And so the uh, I reached out to a woman named Dr. Isabel Hoffmeyer, who was the chair of the African Language and Literatures program at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. And so I, we, we, I interviewed her for the project. I did really well. And I wrote her back at the end to say, you know, and this is like in the early days of, days of email. Right. So this is like 90, this early is 90s. And yes. And so I said to her, you know, I thanked her so much for giving her my, you know, giving the time to me for the interview process. And she was like, you know, you should do your PhD in South Africa. And I was mm. like, so this is 95. So, yeah. you know, one year at South mm-hmm. Africa, you know, Nelson Mandela's president. And I just thought, yes, I want to get back to Africa. I had loved being in Kenya. Um, I, yes, I had, it, it just radicalized my identity. And I just, I wanted to be in a place where I was um, not an anomaly. I was not defensive. I was part, I, I looked like the people that were there. And so I did, I applied for an external uh, scholarship. I got full funding to do a five-year PhD. I literally bought a one-way ticket, the cheapest mm. I could get. 
and I made it to South Africa, right? And there were lots of complications around that, but I made it to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I landed on June 16th, 1996. And, okay. and, but when I got to South Africa, right? In the first place, nobody told me South Africa was cold because I had lived in Kenya. <laughs> right. <laughs> I landed in South Africa and it was winter and there was snow. Like I could not believe there was snow. I was just like, <laughs> what is happening to me? I didn't even have a coat, right? Because right. I had lived in Kenya. I was just like, it's hot. It's going to be hot or rainy. That's pretty much it. Um, but then when I went to register for my classes, um, I also was not prepared for apartheid. And just because mm. it's off the books, it didn't mean that it's out of mm-hmm. people's hearts. Mm-hmm. And so the woman who ran the, you know, the registration and the scholarships um, had all my paperwork. But then she was like, oh, you're Natasha Gordon. And, and I said, yes, I'm Natasha Gordon. And she was like, oh, we thought you were Russian. And I was like, no, I'm a black girl from Brooklyn. Hello, here I am. And so she was just like, hold on for a second. So long story short, the money for the scholarship, for the PhD, for the full funding disappeared. And she was like, now you have just enough money for a master's degree. And I was like, well, I already have a master's. I don't need another one. She was just like, and then she leaned over the counter. And of course, I'm crying at this point, jet lag, you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And she was like, you're taking the place of a good white South African student. You keep going and all the money is going to go. So let's pause here because this is a point where the smoke comes out of my head. Right. Um, Ma'am, <laughs> what was your reaction to hearing that? Well, I was weeping and I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> and so the way that I was just like, wait, this is not what I signed up for. And it was a German scholarship. So all the money had been sent in and I was supposed to be fully covered. So what I ended up getting was um, fully covered room and board in the in like the dorms and my tuition covered for one year masters and, but there was no food on the weekend. And so (laughs) that, so, so yeah, the hungriest I've ever been was those weekends, you know, where I literally had no money because, you know, my parents weren't sending me any money and I wasn't working. And so I, you know, but I remember like walking away, registering for the second masters and calling my mother collect in Brooklyn. And I was Mm -hmm. just like weeping, like, what should I do? The money's gone, you know? And she was like, you got to stay. We bought tickets to visit you. You you got to stay. And so she was like, we're coming in like, you know, six weeks, you have to stay and and knock this out and get the second masters. And I did. Right. And, and I did. And so that was June. Um, But then I had, so I started like doing, doing hair, twisting hair, doing locks as just a way to get a little bit of money. And then I, and then I had won um, I got an invitation to be a scholar in residence at the American University in Cairo, mm-hmm. right, in January of 1997. Mm-hmm. And I had made the decision already in my mind that I was, once I finished the master's, I was not going to do the PhD and I was going to go back to the States because I was so unhappy. Like I had no community, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I had very few friends because I lived on campus. And so where social activities were happening were were sort of in this uh, area called Yeovil and nobody wanted to go with me. Right. And everybody sort of had this idea of, you know, 
Johannesburg being this really scary place. But I was like, I'm from do and die bed style. Like, right. what are you talking about? <laughs> right. you know? And so I did a little venturing on my own, but a lot of people just wanted to like take me to church and, do, you know, and I was just like, oh, I kind of want some more cultural stuff. And I'd go to the movies sometime, but I was broke, you know? Yeah. And so I went to, I got, so I went to Cairo for three weeks in January and my sister came and met me for a portion of that time. And Egypt was incredible. We did it on like a, a shoestring budget. But at that point, I realized how starved I was for, you know, for friendship. You know, I missed mm -hmm. my sister so much. I, I really was longing for family. And I knew that, you know, come June, I was going back to the States and I, you know, I said that. Um, and then I, you know, my sister went back to New York and I came back to Johannesburg and, you know, finishing up the last portion of my thesis writing. And like at the day I got there, a friend called and she was like, oh, come to this place, this jazz club. Um, and, you know, for like Monday, Monday night blues. And I was just like, oh, I don't really want to come. I had a really bad cold. Right. <laughs> I'd gotten a really bad cold just from leaving Egypt and coming back into Johannesburg. And I was like, oh, you know, like really groaning. And she was just yeah. like, please, just just come. You can spend the night at my, you know, at, the, at my house. And so fine. So I go and I have like my glasses on and I'm like all like runny nose and everything. And I'm sitting there with my arms crossed at a table and everybody's drinking and having fun. And, you know, um, and I see some people that I know and I'm just like, oh, gosh, you know, my friend is there and I'm like, well, I'm reliant on her because I have to spend the night at her house. And so she's just, you know, and I'm right. I'm are we leaving here. And then the last performance of the night is this guy and he gets up on the stage with the guitar and he sings this song called I'm a child. And I just thought, Oh, that's really beautiful. You know? And then he comes over and speaks to my friend. Right. And she's just like, Oh, you know, I want to introduce you. He is from like LA and, you know, I mean, he's also visiting South Africa. So, you know, I'm like, Oh, hi, how are you? Whatever. And he was just like, Oh, the only time I've ever been to New York was to visit an ex-girlfriend at this tiny little college called Vassar in Poughkeepsie. <laughs> and at that point I'm like, my heart has just fallen out of my mouth because how could it be that I'm in this smoky little jazz club in Johannesburg and this man is talking about the college that I went to, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I'm going to, so, so that's, that's, that's the beginning of a love story. So I will let him tell his version. <laughs> so you got to pick up as to why you were in South Africa at that point. Um, what's interesting is that I had arrived in South Africa in sort of the same state that she was in. I had been extremely lonely. I had been in Malawi um, mm -hmm. for about eight months and my mother was busy doing politics but she lived in this area where all the politicians lived and sort of it was frustrating for me because my the experience i wanted was a super duper african cultural <laughs> experience but the experience i was getting was this sort of very middle class everybody's in a suit so-and-so is picking up so-and-so in their bends minister of minister of what lives across the street from us and his kid watches 
episodes of Fresh Prince. Prince and Bel Air, <laughs> which when you watch all over the continent in the nineties, that was oh me. Oh my god! And, <laughs> and and just his whole approach. To, my friends were people who had learned English watching Fresh Prince of Bel Air, <laughs> and um, oftentimes what was weird is I'd end up having conversations with their parents, like with my buddy's father, and we'd have conversations about, uh, you know. Chinua Achebe and other like, you know, and Nick Nkrumah and all of these yeah. other intellectual conversations. But the kids I was around in my own age group tended to be like, yo, you're from the States. Teach me some slang. <laughs> you know? Right. How, how do I say something cool? How do I get a West Coast accent? accent. Girls love that West Coast Man. accent. Why are you wearing a daishiki? If you were wearing <laughs> some Tommy Hilfiger, we get all the ladies, you know, and this kind of thing was going on. Tupac and Dre, it was the season. <laughs> oh man. And I was just like, oh man, this is a real, it's kind of a drag, you know? Yeah. Um, I loved them, but it was really intellectually n far from stimulating. <laughs> so I had run into a flyer for an event. Somehow I had run into an advertisement for an event in South Africa. And I saw that, um, Chucho Valdez, who was an amazing Cuban musician, um, mm -hmm. very rich cultural uh, musician from Cuba, was playing in South Africa. And I said to myself, okay, wherever that is happening on the continent, that's where I need to be. And it was happening mm -hmm. in Johannesburg at an event called Arts Alive. Mm. I got there after the event and didn't make it. Um, I ended up staying really far out with some very religious friends of my mother because um, my mother had helped me get down there, but it was like, <clears throat> you need to stay with my friends because that place is wild. And so <laughs> I would sit in their house. I'm in my mid twenties. I don't know if pastor Joshua was out yet, but I, it might've been pastor Joshua if he was out back then, the dude from Nigeria, but they would make sure every day I'd have to watch pastor Joshua or someone of his like, and they, <clears throat> they really didn't like me leaving their house too dangerous outside. You got, you know, you just seem kind of wild. Just sit here and watch these videos of the priest. Everything will be okay. And um, eventually I managed to get out and go to the place where Chucho Valdez had played. Although I missed it just because I was like, well, if he played here, maybe this is where the musicians and the cultural people are. Mm -hmm. And I got there and oddly enough, there was some musicians rehearsing there and so forth. And I said, you know, I, you know, asked them like, where does, where do things go down? What happens around here? And they're like, oh no, you got to get to Yeovil. That's where all the musicians are. And it was a particular hot spot for culture in South Africa. And then they advised me, they, one of them, Becky Koza, who was a guitar player was like, I run, I'm part of this event, part of this band that plays at this event. You should come. It's an open mic, come do your thing. And I actually ended up um, going to this event. It was called Monday Blues. Mm -hmm. And that's where I met Natasha. Now, um, her version of the story is that we were talking about Vassar. The way I remember it very specifically, <laughs> she mentioned something about having gone to Vassar. And I knew that I knew that place. So I remember looking at her and going, oh, because one of the things I remembered about Vassar is that they had a day called Founders Day. Oh, yeah. And on Founders Day, all the white kids sat out by the statue of the founder and did mushrooms. So she said, 
she had said she'd gone to Vassar. And I remember asking her, oh, so do you hang out with all the white kids on the lawn in front of the founder doing mushroom on Founders Day? And she was like, what are you talking about? How do you know about that? And then the conversation ensued about Vassar because I had blown her mind right there. And, um, and yeah, and it was really amazing for me because to be dead honest, the only time I'd ever left L.A. at that point, I told you I was stuck in L.A. because my family was in this mm-hmm. exile situation. It was also dangerous for us to move around. So yeah. only time I'd ever left L.A. was to go to New York and go to Vassar. It's the single time I had gotten on. A, it was like the first time I had put wow. myself on a plane to anywhere. I went there, got my heart broken by this girl who <laughs> kind of invited me out there, rejected me, all of this. And I feel years later that the whole purpose of me arriving in Vassar in Poughkeepsie was <laughs> so that years later I would arrive in Johannesburg and have a conversation piece to start with this woman who's now my wife. So what we've got to say is we've got to give Vassar some money because they be making matches, even though they don't know that that's what they're doing. <laughs> Word. Exactly. Exactly. And to my ex-girlfriend who was so mean to me, <coughs> thank you so much. You hooked me up, girl. <laughs> oh, my God. So so at this point, you're both in South Africa. Obviously, you guys connect and and obviously your relationship progresses. Do you when when you guys both get back to the States, where do you settle? Like, where do you end up first? Because you go somewhere. Do you go, are you West coast? Are you in New York? Are you, do you go somewhere else in the world? What do you do? Brooklyn. Um, (laughs) She introduced me to Brooklyn and remember having come from Los Angeles Mm. and then having been in South Africa, I had never really been to Brooklyn, which for me was sort of a black Mecca. It was like Mm. a revelation because LA is predominantly a white society with a couple of black cultural hubs like Leimert Park, where I spent a lot of time, but primarily it's, it's, it's a white world. So for when she took me into Brooklyn, it was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. The amount of culture just everywhere was fascinating to me. And she took me to, um, a place called Inkiru Books, which um, was a black owned bookstore. And I remember going there and meeting the guy working behind the counter was um, was an MC. He was a rapper. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to him about South Africa and he was fascinated and I was fascinated by him and, and his, 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 his mindset was very intellectual, interesting guy. And then he said, you know, I want you to listen to my music. And I was like, Oh no, Oh no. Let's listen to my demo time. I don't want to my mixtape. My mix I don't, <laughs> don't want to do that. Cause now I'm going to have to tell this dude, I don't like his like stuff. This is what always happens. And he put it, you know, it was back in the days of cassette. He puts yep. this cassette on, I put it on in my headphones and I'm literally like my jaw drops. I'm like, this is mind blowing. Like this is not just good. This is insanely mind blowing. And it's the first recording. He is this guy named Talib Kweli and the other guy he's on the recording is most deaf. Who's now known known as Yasin Bey, but this is before they've put out an album, anything. And I'm just listening to these guys going, I like, I don't remember 
like what is happening with you guys? This is so cool and so different and so unique. What are you doing? And how are you going to eat doing this? And he was like, um, you know, since since the deaths of the of Biggie, Tupac and all this at this point, there's a shift happening in hip hop and people are are, are moving back to the consciousness of the early nineties mm-hmm. where there was more being said and there was more substance in the music. And so I became kind of attached to Nkiru books um, and that, that friendship um, and Natasha and was working with his mom actually at um, mm-hmm. Medgar Evers college at a mm-hmm. certain point. And that sort of just led to me being involved in that circle of artistry in Brooklyn that um, included a lot of my generation sort of avant folks like Saul Williams and Jessica Caremore and a lot of these names that people will know from the poetry mm-hmm. and hip hop circles um, were all in Brooklyn at the time. And it, it was a revelation to me. And I was able to go back. We started going back and forth to South Africa and I was able to go back to South Africa and make connections for the people in the hip hop world in South Africa, which eventually mm-hmm. led to people like uh, groups like Dead Prez and a bunch of like mm-hmm. conscious musicians and rappers from the States um, making journeys to South Africa through connections I ha- began having in both places. But it really started with her taking me around Brooklyn and introducing me to all of these incredible cultural hubs. So, so what's really fascinating is that, so you, so you're in Brooklyn, you're you're getting this additional education, I feel like that's feeding onto from a musical and a historical standpoint. And I imagine for you, Natasha, you're you've come home because this is that's what you were surrounded by. And so right now it sounds very loving, but you guys obviously have made a decision to leave because you're in Costa Rica. So how long were you there before you made the decision? I think we've got to leave this place that we know we love and kind of what was the catalyst for that? Did I jump in? Okay. Um, so coming home to, to Brooklyn, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I love Brooklyn. I, you know, I have always been critical of multiple spaces and I've lived in different spaces. Um, before we got to Brooklyn, we spent a year in LA where Masuko recorded an album, you know, so we, we met, um, in South Africa and we traveled, you know, we went to Zimbabwe, went to Malawi several times. Um, and so we, we were definitely not necessarily wedded to the United States, but what happened was, well, we had our son, right. In, in 2001 and my, my parents were in New York and then we had our daughter, you know, almost four years later. And at that point I was already on a tenure track um, position. I was finishing my, my PhD. Eventually I finished it. Um, and, and I was on a tenure track line and, you know, teaching literature in the university. And so I, you know, so that was sort of the thing that grounded us. But I would never say that definitely I was not enamored with what was happening. I think both Masuko and I, as, you know, first generation um, Americans, as children of immigrants with certain, with definite ties outside of the United States, we also, um, we really understood the, the textures of history and the textures mm. of history in the United States, right? And so our children grew up knowing the Obamas, right? So mm-hmm. they grew up in a world where that family was essentially, you know, the the, the family of power. Um, and 
the representation that they saw, you know, with these Malia um, and um, Sasha, Sasha, right? Yes. Well, I was going to say Natasha because that's actually her real name. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so seeing these two girls. So my children grew up in that particular world. They grew up in an Obama world. You know, they went to um, they went to a, a private Quaker school in Brooklyn. Right. So mm-hmm. the Quaker philosophy was very much there with the friends philosophy. You know, they were having this very elite private education, um, but it didn't take away from sort of the the racial, um, the, the racial things that were happening in the world and also happening in, in, in their classrooms in subtle ways, right? So the ways that, you know, and sometimes they were pulled out of class. Oh, so-and-so, she can't read, she needs an extra tutor. I can't believe that we spent, and we did, right? We, we spent hundreds of dollars, you know, on additional tutors for math and reading. And once we took our kids out of that environment, our kids never actually, when they were assessed properly in Costa Rica, they never had any of these issues. But a lot of it was sort of the ways that that race plays into marginalizing certain certain groups of people. But I would say in Brooklyn, we sort of we formed a life, you know, um, mm-hmm. We we had a tiny little townhouse and, you know, we we had parties there. We had a community, um, certainly with, you know, my academic work and Masoko's um, musical work. There was there was sort of a bridge that was happening where we were very much involved in an incredible community of people who had uh, a, a lot of them who also had family, you know, had children. And we were raising these children, black children together and. But that did not, you know, that did not change the fact that we could cry on the night that Obama became elected and look at each other going, wow, in my lifetime, I never thought that this would happen. This, can you pinch me? Like, this is unbelievable. And, you know, I never, I never imagined this because of the ways that race works in the United States. But at the same time, we would also know, hmm, post-Obama, is going to be a dangerous place in the United States. We knew that. We had taken the temperature. We had seen, we understood reconstruction. We understood all those things that happened to Black excellence and then how it very carefully, you know, gets dismantled. And even though we had certain... um you know, we had sort of tenuous trappings of middle life, like uh, middle class life. And I always want to say tenuous because blackness anywhere in the world, um, the ideas of having um, having anything permanent, obviously, in the way that race and class work can be can be removed very quickly. And so yeah. I would say tenuous in the sense that we had very good jobs. We had we had um, we provide our children with opportunities. We could travel. You know, we could we could do certain things. Um, but at the same time we were willing to walk away from it. And I will say, so the impetus of this is really, and Masuko can tell you his version, but the impetus of this was we were in a townhouse where we had agreed that this was the year that we were going to put an offer in to buy the house. Like we had, we had rented the house for X amount of years. And this was like year six where we had to make an offer or we had to leave right? Because mm-hmm. he wanted to sell the house. And mm-hmm. so um, I had gotten a, sh- a small research grant in January to come to Costa Rica to do some preliminary work on slavery in Costa Rica. And a mm-hmm. lot of it had to do with me beginning to have conversations with my mother about, you know, the bla- legacy of blackness of Afro descendants in Costa Rica. And she was, you know, raised in Costa Rica and she was just like, nowhere in my education was there any mention of, of slavery. It didn't happen. I was like, well, actually, 
in actuality, <laughs> slavery was in Costa Rica for over 200 years. Um, and, and I felt like there's, there's an interesting contradiction with slavery and it's sort of being wiped out of Costa Rican national narratives. And then the fact that Costa Rica has a black Madonna that they venerate like 90% of the country is Catholic and they have a black Madonna. So I was just like, so how does this fit? So I got this small grant to come to Costa Rica and I probably went for about 10 days, but it was the first time in my life that it wasn't for a vacation. It wasn't for, you know, somebody was going to usher me around. I let my cousin allowed me to stay in her house. She gave me a set of keys and she said, the bus stop is out front. You figure it out. And that was literally it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, like, how am I going to manage this? I don't understand. Like, is this go who's going to translate for me? I need to get to the library. I need to get to the National Archives. And she was like, take the bus. And, and I did. And I did. And I loved it. And I walked around and I got lost and I tried to figure out the coins on the bus and nobody looked like me. There are very few black people, you know, in, in like in San, the San Jose area. But it didn't feel it didn't feel like I needed to be on the defensive. I didn't need to be afraid. I sat in coffee shops. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And when I came back after that week, I guess I was just sharing with Masahuko, you know, how much that trip really moved me. And I remember we had just gotten the first bank approval for the mortgage for the 30 year loan, you know, for this house. And I remember sitting on our bed and he looked at me and he said, are you sure you want to commit to 30 years in this house or do you want to move to Costa Rica? And I looked at him, it had never crossed my mind. But when he said it, it was like my ancestors were speaking out of his mouth. Mm. And that was the direction we went. So Masuko can tell more of it. <laughs> I was going to say, so when, at what year, what year, just give us a time frame as you, as you launch into kind of the extension of her story. Do you remember so, what year it was? That, yes. So we got here in June, 2014. So I would say that was January, 2013. Okay. Yes, it was a year before. Yeah, she, um, am I muted? No. <laughs> okay, yeah. <clears throat> um, she, I had been coming with her to Costa Rica. We'd come a few times and she'd taken me to Lom Limon. And um, one very amazing thing that had happened when we arrived in Limon by bus the first time, for some reason, I think it was, wasn't it just me and you? No, Jabu was there with us. He was 11 okay. months. Yeah. He was really little. Okay. Um, it was the first time we arrived in Limon, we got off of the bus and a man walked up with a guitar and said, and looked at Natasha and said, you're Norma's daughter. And she was like, what? And he literally looked at her face and could tell that she was the daughter of somebody that he had grown up with years ago. And, you know, this guy plays guitar and plays Limon Calypso. May have played mm. a tune or something, but it was like, wow, this place is definitely home for my wife. If a man can walk up to her on the street and see her history in her face and name her and where she is from and everything all at once, you know, mm. um, 
And that never left me. It always felt like a sort of sign of sorts. Um, and then we just had beautiful experiences with her family in, in um, Costa Rica. And we had amazing experiences on the coast in Limon. It just always felt good when we were here. And it really, for me, I kind of always understood when I left the States in 90, uh, in the early 90s, I understood I never really, really wanted to live there again. Like I understood mm. everything that's happening now for me is predictable. None of it, <laughs> none of this is shocking to me. It's yeah. not, it's exactly what I expected to happen. And most of my friends will tell you, yeah, it kind of went the way you said it would go, dude. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so therefore, it's been a, a phenomenal move for us. It's, it was the right move for us. It was the right move for our children. Mm. Um, and I feel especially good now. I'm, I'm, I'm 50. I just turned 50, uh, you know, a few days ago. And happy birthday. I, thank you. <laughs> I'm really happy to be in a place where racism doesn't take up so much of my mind because um, for me, uh, right around the time she was um, taking that journey to um, Costa Rica to do some research, somewhere in that time period, I had been pulled over in Brooklyn by the police on my bike. And I was pulled over um, riding my bike in the street, which is illegal, but <laughs> no, riding, I was riding on the sidewalk, which is illegal. But what had happened is the street was completely destroyed and they were fixing it. And so it was really rigid. And so in order not to fall on my bike, I had moved up on the sidewalk in order not to fall. And immediately the cops pulled up on the smoother part of the road and the, the, you know, blew the sirens or whatever. And um, I was like, okay, I know I'm busted. I'm on the sidewalk, but I have a good reason. The street's destroyed right here. Mm -hmm. um, and it was two black cops. And... <clears throat> They looked at me and, you know, do you know why I'm pulling you over? I'm like, it's probably because I'm on the sidewalk, um, but the street's kind of messed up right here. I don't want to fall down. And the black police officer looked over at me and said, okay, I'm going to need your license and registration. Your, your, I'm going to need your license and so forth. I said, okay, no problem. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not going to find any warrants for your arrest on here, am I? And huh. I was just in shock because I'm like, brother, huh. like... I'm getting pulled over for riding my bike on the sidewalk. How do we go from, you know, I'm a, a ticket to, am I going to find warrants under your name in two seconds? And so, unfortunately, I kind of wasn't expecting that from him. And I reacted and said, no, you're not going to find, I have no record for my whole life. You're not going to mm -hmm. find anything on there. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of ticked him off and he spent, 20 minutes looking for something, digging, digging, digging. And finally I kind of went, okay, use all the same philosophy you've learned about dealing with cops with these guys. And then I said, Oh, you know what, sir? I, could I please call home because I'm supposed to bring the dinner for my children. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I have it in my backpack. I need to call their grandmother to let her know I'm running a little late because I'm getting this ticket. And he yeah. said, go ahead. So I got on the phone with Natasha's mom, who was at my house, and I said, you know, sorry, Abuelita, sorry, Grandma, I'm running a little late from, I'm coming home from my job at the Brooklyn Museum <laughs> <laughs> on my way home with the food for the children. Yeah. And I will be there in just a minute as soon as I finish with this ticket 
from the police. I shouldn't have been riding on the sidewalk, but it was a little dangerous. I'll be there in a few minutes. And that's all performance because we've learned as, right. as black men that, okay, if you contextualize yourself as someone who has children and a job and all the middle class trappings and you articulate yourself clearly, eventually they'll go, oh, at the time I had locks. So, but one of the cops had locks. So, I, yeah. you know, but the point was I need to articulate to them that I'm a middle-class working man on the way home. And eventually they let me go and said, you know, to be honest, we already wrote the ticket, so you have to take it. But if you take a couple of pictures of the street on your way to work tomorrow, they'll drop this ticket and it shouldn't be a big deal, whatever. Um, and of course that happened. They dropped the ticket and everything. But for me to have been... Uh, racialized that way by another black person, I, I lost all hope right then. I was like, oh no, I can't do this. Cause if, 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 if I got to get this from my own people to do, mm -hmm. uh, it's too confusing. It didn't work that way where I, where I'd come from in LA in general, it was going to be black person, the Rodney King situation, black <laughs> right. person, white cop. But when it turned into black person, black cop, same stereotypes that I was done. I, I, I needed, I, I realized I need to move my body out of here because I'm unsafe. And this consciousness of how we see each other has spread amongst us in a way that I don't understand. That's the best way I could put it. So I knew we needed to get out. And um, people are always shocked because her family's from Costa Rica, but it was my idea. I was the one who was like, let's move to Costa Rica. Let's try that. <laughs> you know, I, Obviously, you run a site called The Black Expat. You talk about race a lot, and I talk about systems a lot. And I think you just gave a perfect example of, you know, people can see a person of color, another Black person or whatever, and not assume that they, too, can still put the same biases and the same prejudice and the same power dynamics towards someone else. And I always say, look, here's the thing. If the system is problematic, whoever the players are, don't really matter. And, and that's part of the problem I think we're dealing with white supremacy because I always give these examples. I've seen some nonsense go down on the continent, but part of it is a legacy of colonialism, depending who colonized you, whether it was the British, the French, the Germans, the Belgians, God bless them, the Dutch, <laughs> you know, depending on who colonized you, that's the legacy is that even though people can be gone, they've made a system to do what it's supposed to do, irrespective of the face who's running it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The, show, the show we used to watch as children, wasn't it called something like White Shadow? <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's, it just, white shadow. it just, it, it drives me nuts, but I, you know, I, I know that you guys have two children and, and you, you've referenced, both of you have referenced them. Um, was that a factor in your decision when you when you decided to go to Costa Rica at all? Was that even? Yes. I mean, I, yeah. So I would say probably underlying all of it, that was probably the most definitive reason why we decided to buy one way tickets out. Mm. Um, and I remember specifically we had we had gone to spring. We had we had gone to D.C. to for spring break. And our son played baseball, right? So that was his thing. And he, and it was always a journey to get him to baseball practice. And, you know, my brother is fantastic because he always volunteered to do that on Saturday mornings. But I remember that my son, um, we were on the mall 
right? And we were running ahead. And I think there was a gentleman, an older black gentleman who told him like not to run. And we had to have the conversation. So it was Mm -hmm. really the idea of you're right at that age, you know, where he would be running for baseball practice, but you're right at that age. So 12, Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Um, Where it's kind of like, you're, you're morphing from the cute kid in his baseball uniform to the potential criminal who stole somebody's bag and you're running away. And we were just like, you know, also thinking about our daughter, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn where, you know, definitely the cat calls, you know, people slapping you on your butt, you know, people grabbing you, just feeling sort of the hostility of walking in, in a in a brown girl's body through the streets of Brooklyn um, mm-hmm. was something that was something I didn't want my daughter to necessarily have to have as part of her childhood. And so, and, you know, we thought about, okay, so when our kids go to high school and if we live in this house, you know, they have to walk to the train, which is about six blocks away from here. And they have to pass this and this and this and this corner store. And, you know, I mean, we thought about those things, mm-hmm. right. And we were like, absolutely clear that no you know we we are we are smart enough we have traveled enough um we we are not we don't hold on to the trappings of materialism enough that we are not willing to give it all up to make sure that our children who didn't Mm -hmm. ask to be here are not protected and we figured that if we could go to costa rica and they could get another language but also live in a country that did not have that does not have an army Right. Mm. Already the socialization of a country that does not have a military. Right. Mm -hmm. And what that says in the psyche of the people here, Mm. there's no place that's perfect, but certainly it was an alternative to what we had been living. And we ended up, you know, coming and it was serendipity, you know, all the things that happened, the kids got into a great school and an international school. And we decided, okay, we'll let the kids lead in our decision, right? We'll try it for a year. We put everything in storage and we'll try it for a year, even though, of course, I would, I mean, I'm sure Masako will agree. We were kind of like, yo, one way ticket. <laughs> we ain't come back. But, but, but like, right. But we don't want, you know, we don't want our kids to be on the therapist right. couch for the rest <laughs> of their lives. So we were just like, okay, let's try it for the year. That's the language that we use. Used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a research grant for that year. So I was actually for the first time in my adult working life, not technically working, but doing research and writing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we ended up in a house that was spectacular that we, even with all the money or whatever, the steady checks that we had in the United States, there's no way we could have mimicked the same kind of space and the garden and the neighborhood with the kids on the bikes. And, you know, I was always joking with my friends, like we landed in 1950s suburbia where, you know, all the cul-de-sacs and like everybody was out there playing and walking their dogs. But that was sort of the reality that we were in. Our kids literally, you know, they got up, they went out the gate, they had their friends, they were, we, they got on their bikes, they walked their dogs, they spent time creating friendships. They did that. They did that here and they got the language and they played soccer and, you know, my daughter fell off her bike and broke her wrist and, you know, had a cast on and all these sort of markings of childhood that I know for a fact my children would not have had that in New York because I would have literally had to been a shadow for them. Mm. I would have had to walk. They they would have been much more um, at, at home and less and, and less um, 
with the ability to have adventure or explore, but they were able to have that. And we've been here for six years and they are completely bilingual. You know, my son now is a second year sophomore in, in university. He goes to Canada, school in Canada, you know, and all these things set him up to be this global person. And we're so proud of them. It was the best decision of our lives. I was going to ask that question because obviously your, your children now are, so if he's a second year, I assume 18, 19, 20, He'll be, yes, he's 19. And then your, and your daughter at this point is held 15. Okay. So was it, it's interesting. He's in college in Canada. Was it a a decision on his part not to go to the U S or, or was it just, there was, and Canada's got great schools. So this isn't shade on Canada in any way, or was it a, just an opportunity that he decided to take? I, I, I'm actually really intrigued on that as either of you can answer, but why did he choose Canada? I feel like that was sort of a family decision. Um, but I also think that it became clear through the Trump era that things, it's so obvious that things are hostile and intense. And also he visited uh, a few times and met with friends that he had gone to school with in, um, in New York and in Brooklyn. And they have all reported to him like, man, things have gotten rough out here. The way we were when we were kids, it's not the same. It's really difficult. And mm. friendships have been broken. And the sort of community we had at the school has fallen apart. The school has descended into a lot of racial animosity. Um, so it was apparent to all of us that it just would make more sense to go to some place where you wouldn't have to jump into the center of that. The timing of it... Mm made it clear. Had it been a couple of years earlier, maybe, I don't know, a couple of years later, but the moment, you know, you know what it's been for like the last year and a half, two years, it's been really upfront and brutal. And, um, all of the shootings of, 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 of black folks, we see all of it. We see all of it and we experience it in a different way. I also think that in a way it's kind of more intense because we're not getting the we lived in the States and we know the day to day where you're going over to your neighbor's house and having a conversation and you're missing all of that. Now we're here where you're going to find out about, you're going to hear, um, I can't breathe. You know, you're going to find out about black lives matter and the big moments tend to be placed in front of your face. So I think that it was just logical, you know, it was just logical and him and my wife went there and he liked it. And um, the school had very specific programs that fit with what he wants to do in life. That was also a huge part of it. But, um, you know, our, we're hoping to have our daughter go to Canada, too. Um, and she's she sees it that way, too. The, pretty much most of the young people here who had been intending to go to the States are now headed to Spain. They're headed to Canada. They're headed all over the world and sort of avoiding being in the States, which... You know, it's sad uh, because at the same time, I'm not a person who forgets that I grew up hearing the music of Stevie Wonder and I grew up with uh, Michael Jackson and so many beautiful aspects of culture and and. I don't know how to explain it, but the connection, the human connection I felt with the people I love from day to day in the United States is -hmm. something that I do not dismiss. I think that there's a lot of cultural beauty, especially amongst black folks in the United States that 
somehow manages to feed the whole world, mm-hmm. yet at the same time, folks are just not appreciated for their contribution. So mm-hmm. I always I say that to always make sure that the black people who are in that reality who live from day to day know that now nah, I love y'all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I love y'all. Yeah. Y'all my people and I wouldn't be who I am without the cultural cultural contributions of of black folks of all from the Caribbean, from Africa, from African Americans, all of those different folks who affected me in the United States. You know, both of you in, in speaking, you've kind of echoed some of the conversations I've had with Black parents who are abroad right now, specifically Black American p- parents, um, where they've got school-aged children, high school-aged children who are thinking about university, where maybe they were thinking about coming to the U.S. and a very clear pivot <laughs> is happening <laughs> where they are looking at Europe, they are looking at Canada, they're looking at other places. And as someone, um, some people know this, I work in higher ed. I remember when I was living in the Middle East and and when I was there, it, that's when the 2016 election happened, which it's always entertaining to be in the Middle East when <laughs> when American politics is happening. Um, and I remember the students who were thinking about graduate studies, right? And how they looked at what was happening and said, yeah, I think I'm going to go somewhere else. And, and I told this, I remember telling this to Americans when I was living out there and I'm saying, we're going to see a real pivot in education in a moment. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, there's a pivot. And I kid you not, like a year later, when you started to see just with international students mm-hmm. making a change, and I guarantee you, no one's even counting American passport holders who decided to go not to college in the U.S., mm-hmm. um, I said, there's a very real impact. You know, they say elections have consequences. (laughs) A lot of times people don't know. They think, well, you know, we've always had a system where we, we, regardless of what happens, we just kind of bop along. And I, I always look at folks and go, man, spoken like someone who's never actually lived in an authoritative or dictatorship society. <laughs> Cause if you, if, if your family has ever had any kind of relationship, good or bad with certain communities and governments in the world, you sort of see certain things happen in the U S and you get really nervous very quickly and nobody understands because, you know, we've always been the country that just kind of hops along and, and, and we're always not that side, but I go, no, 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 no. You're, you're about to have uh, the fun experiences that some of us have seen in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, in parts of Eastern Europe. And, and so to kind of bring it back with with you guys, I, I I've definitely seen that sentiment where parents and their and their student have made that decision collectively and said, "Yeah, you don't have to go there if you don't want to," <laughs> and we understand, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, can I jump ahead. in for a second? Yeah. So the way that it worked, um, actually, statistically, you're correct. So the way that it works, and I think College Board has mm-hmm. um, just released some data. So basically the the international uh, students that they would normally um, reach out to, you know, students who are in international schools all over the world who are sort of being um, uh, groomed to come mm-hmm. into U.S. universities, they are not coming. 
Mm-hmm. They, but the only, um, the only group that remains the same for international students are the students who are going to the Ivies. So Harvard and Yale and Columbia will con- and Stanford will continue to get their numbers because those children, wherever they are in the world, have been groomed since day one to go to those particular schools. Everyone else, um, in terms of international applicants, which is where they get the most money, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They have, there, there are no funds for that. You basically pay out of pocket to to um, to commit to a school, and that's. That's why Canada was also very, um, not only did it have the singular program that my son absolutely wanted, and it was the only university to have this program of sports management, and it was very, very com- competitive, but it was it was just financially more viable, right? In mm. particular, being someone in the education system for so, year, so many years, I'm a professor, I've seen both sides of it. I understand, you know, what cost and, and the rigors of education, and he made the best choice. I mean, I, I mean, you totally hit the, the nail on the head, right? Those one percent of schools are always going to get whatever, because you're right. People are groomed and they're the names. Right. But everywhere else, it's just sort of we've, we're seeing the impact. And, and I, I mean, we're recording this pre-election. We just started early voting in our state. It is a swing state, so I'm kind of over all the ads and the it's it's ridiculous. I mean, you guys, you guys are really in a sweet spot because you don't have to hear all the. I'm sure if you go on YouTube and use you oh, VPN, yeah. but like, it it's crazy. But just the impact it has, and and I don't think. I think until folks like you who are outside of the country are saying, hey, this is how the world is seeing things, people kind of get it because when you're kind of breathing the air, you think things are normal. You know, it's that whole blowing the frog analogy, right? Like if you're in it, you're just like, "Uh, I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable, but is it as bad as I think it is? But then everyone outside the bubble is going, no, it looks insane. (laughs) It looks absolutely insane. And I remember that watching you know, watching the the election outside of the U.S. and going, it's watching a movie, but you know the background information. You know, it's kind of like, you know, how the sausage is made, right? Like you're seeing it and you you know very intimately how that how that American sausage is made. And that's why we're vegetarians. (laughs) (laughs) And so hold on, hold on one sec. Okay, so let's I didn't I didn't want the. Okay, cool. Yeah. I didn't want the three-year-old screaming. Um, so tell me real quickly from you guys' perspective, what is um, what is kind of the best things about living in Costa Rica? I know that we do have folks who are living, who are, who are listening from all over the planet, but I know that there's a particular interest I see with Black America that's looking at, at Costa Rica. And I know proximity is part of it. So what has been your experiences and, and, And be honest in terms of what are the things that people really have to consider that maybe they're not considering when it comes to living there? Um, I'll go first because she can fill out all gaps. Um, (laughs) She knows a lot more about this than I do because she actually runs a business where she um, advises people who are considering moving to Costa Rica. Um, For me, the best things about it, number one, just to keep it real simple, the weather is mind blowing. I'm, I'm a person who wept and cried all the time living in New York. Uh, the word that my children heard me use every day in New York as I came into the house was space. 
space. I need space because everything is crammed. People are living on top of each other. Uh, the streets are always filled. It's dirty a lot of the time. The subway's <laughs> packed. You're squeezed in there. You got your coat on uh, in the subway. And, you know, you wore your coat because it was freezing outside. Then you get in the subway and it's actually kind of hot, but you're standing <laughs> next to people. Now you're sweating in your coat. Can't take off your coat because there's no room to move your arms. And you're screaming the word space, space in your head. Um, so one thing is beautiful about Costa Rica is there's just tons of space. The way that our house is set up is just everybody has their own space. There is, is no clutter here. And I'm thoroughly a person who believes that when the clutter in the in your space is clutter in your mind. So that's one thing that's just amazing. Uh, like I said, the weather tops it off. It's always pretty warm here. It never gets really cold or overly hot. Um, the people are just kind. In general, mm -hmm. Costa Ricans are very kind people and they tend towards being friendly with folks, mm -hmm. it helps to learn, you know, learn some Spanish, know how to speak to people, assume an attitude that says, um, I am, I'm open. I think that one thing is that as a black person, I find people are, tend to just be curious. You know, they're like, hey, how, where are you from? How did you get here? Are you mm -hmm. from Jamaica? Are you from Limon? Are you from, where did you come from? You know, mm -hmm. and if you answer those questions without hostility, you tend to make friends immediately. Mm -hmm. There's no, um, I haven't experienced a lot of racial craziness. Of course, there's little things that happen because we are on planet Earth, but <laughs> nothing, nothing that makes me feel like my life is going to be threatened, you know? So I would say... If you're thinking about moving here, the biggest hurdle is going to be that it's hard to work here. If mm. you if you need to be one of those people who has the ability to work remote. So okay. if you are someone who is a teacher or an educator and can work through the computer, uh, you'll do fine. If you're someone who has a business that works, you know, online and can work that way, you'll be fine. If not, it's a really hard process, which Natasha can tell you more about, to get yourself the papers and permits it takes to have a job and work here. Okay. Um, so one of the things about Costa Rica is that because it doesn't have an army, Mm. Um, a lot of the money has been put into the education system. So Costa Rica has a very high literacy rate and the national, um, the University of Costa Rica is considered like the, one of the top three in Latin America. I mean, it wow. is an incredible university. It is, you know, it's competitive to get into, but you pay basically about 5,000, you pay about $5,000, right? And you could go all the way through and become a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, right? So professional careers are um, sort of the mandate. So Costa Rica is very much, um, I guess, centered around the family unit. It's predominantly a Catholic, I would say, and or Christian country. And so family and multi-generational living is something that is the norm here. So very much culturally, people believe that you have young people, they go to university, they live with their families, they don't go out on their own and get like an apartment or whatever. And basically until they get married um, or can afford to purchase their own home, that is when they would leave. So you have people in their mid-30s, you know, living with their family still, and that's not a social 
anomaly. It, it's just, it's cultural, it's understood. And so, yes, you could be living in home with grandma and auntie and your parents and your siblings until you basically get married and move out. Um, and for those who do venture out on their own, usually it's not a situation of, I want to take out a loan. It's usually like, you know, you've worked, you've saved your money, and then you're going to buy your first property. So that's mm. sort of how people aspire. Um, but in saying that, it is, as Masugo said, it is very difficult to find work here because Costa Rica's um, commitment is that they want to place their people first in employment because they're so qualified. And mm -hmm. so if you are coming from outside, there are some sure ways to get in. So you're a business owner, you're going to start a, a you know, um, a restaurant, you're going to start a hotel, you're going to start, you know, something where you're going to invest and pay taxes in the country. Absolutely. You know, you will be able to sort of speed through the immigration process of getting residency once you have your business. You can also be a retiree, right? Somebody who has who has um, proof of a social security, a pension check that is coming from the United States in dollars or in other currencies from other places in the world, you can get your res residency mm -hmm. very quickly that way because there's that surety. The, the, the one that is most difficult is coming to Costa Rica just to come to Costa Rica, right? right. Without having and looking for employment here. So I would say that the one main way to get employment in Costa Rica is through sort of English language in some way, whether you are um, a teacher who can teach in one of the private schools in English because they do prioritize native speakers, mm -hmm. right? And there are lots of private schools in, you know, in Costa Rica. Um, but I would say, or in one of the language schools, right? So that is sort of an easier way. The other thing is that, as Masuko said, you have to sort of be um, location independent, right? So that means that you have some sort of consulting, you have an online business, multiple streams of income where you can essentially survive location independent. You can live in Costa Rica, you have access to Wi-Fi, but you can continue to have those services because it's even difficult to open a bank account in Costa Rica just to be here. I mean, you can't just randomly open it. There's, there's lots of... Um, there, there's a lot of bureaucracy. For us, um, the way that it works for U.S. passport holders, you can only become permanent residents um, after seven years. And so in June of 2021, we will finally get our permanent residency. But what that means is that every year we have to reapply and pay fees for our temporary residency until we get to our seventh year. Okay. So that that's a major commitment and it's a financial commitment. And I think a lot of people don't, they just think, okay, I'm coming to Costa Rica and living with the sloths in the rainforest. And people <laughs> think, oh, you're on the beach. No, if we go to the beach maybe twice a year. You're we afraid. live and work in our house. You know, I mean, we, we, we are in our community. I mean, it's not like we're under palm trees. We, we don't live in a beach community. We live in the in the Central Valley. You know, I mean, just like everybody else, like in New York, people like, you know, you live in New York. You don't go to Rockefeller Center and, and Statue of Liberty. Um, hello. No. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe when somebody comes from outside who is like, you know, begging to to go to these tourist spots. But in actuality, we, we live and work just like in any other place. It just happens to be very beautiful here. So let me ask you this question as, as we start to wrap up, because y'all have been a lot of places. And I always like to ask this. And, and, and this is for both of you. So both of you got to think your answer. Okay. So if we take Costa Rica off the table, right? And 
I, I, I'm not going to say the second part. Yeah. If we take Costa Rica off the table, where do you think you would live? Wow. <laughs> See that? <laughs> He's like, what matter? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Tell me more. Why? Why is it hard? Because I know I don't want to go back and live in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think collectively we would have to, there would have to be a major draw to another place that maybe um, would be, you know, maybe from Masoko's career or something that our children would pull us through. But, you know, we are two and a half years out from from being sort of empty nesters. And yep. so for me, I'm thinking, you know, Costa Rica will continue to be our base so our children can come back and visit us. But essentially we can also travel and do mm-hmm. a bunch of other things that, you know, we we haven't, we've done, but not in the way that we've done sort of as a couple, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sort of continuing our own careers. I mean, we're old, but we're not that old. You know? so, Y'all ain't old. You right. ain't old. I, I, I don't know. I, I actually don't, I don't know, but it would have to be something that collectively we decide on. But to be honest, I want this to be my last stop as like a permanent place to be and, and then to explore the world from here. Mm. I don't know. So Masoko can answer. <laughs> yeah. I guess if I had to pick another place, it would probably be Canada because um, my children uh, are intending to be in school there. And so to have proximity with them would be, would be the only thing, you know, especially when you, you know, and as a daddy, when your daughter's leaving the house, it's like, man, if I could be as close to where my daughter is going to be in this crazy world, you know, you in case, in case anybody needs, you know, she needs me to come by with a bat or whatever. Um, <laughs> that would probably be the idea. And I've, I've liked every journey I've taken to Canada. I've been to Montreal. Mm-hmm. I've been to, um, Vancouver. I've really enjoyed those places. And I've also in New York, we were always exposed to culture mm-hmm. from Toronto. A lot of artists and so forth mm-hmm. had come down and they always seemed, it seemed like, again, it had another Caribbean vibe and a very mm-hmm. kind of, um, cool cultural thing going down. So I would probably pick Canada just because it give me proximity to my children over the next years. Um, but I prefer Costa Rica because I don't want to be anywhere near, near cold. cold? <laughs> I don't want to be where it's cold. That's one part of my African soul from Malawi. I like we're, we're, we're near the equator, uh, the yeah. equator. So uh-huh. the, the seasons where it's warm and then, you know, it rains and mm-hmm. then it goes back to being warm and then it rains <laughs> like, and you never see snow. And yeah, that's all me. That's, that's me a hundred percent. So I like it here. I'm not going to lie. It's definitely a loaded question. And I love asking folks because the, the responses are real interesting. And there's a, there's a woman I interviewed who's Jamaican and they live in uh, rural Japan, all three of the kids. I mean, they're her and her husband. I think her husband's first flight was to, to Japan when they got married to, to right Jamaica to Japan and and their kids first language is this dialect of Japanese that is spoken because they're not in Tokyo they're they're in the country and I asked her I was like 
you know, where, 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 where you think it's going to be? And she said, Japan is home for our kids, even though <laughs> ain't nobody look like them. This is their community. But she said something interesting. She said, if not, maybe Canada. And I said, you know, Canada's Canada's moving up, moving up in the rankings. But she said the same thing as you did in, in sense that. But it's cold, though. And I'm, I'm a. I'm a, she's like, I'm a Jamaican girl, even though I'm in, <laughs> I'm in Japan. And so, um, but thank you guys so much for sharing, sharing your story. I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful, rich story from both of you and then trying to weave it. And so I, I really appreciate some of the insight that you guys have given and, and you've shared. And um, we're going to make sure that all the links to all of your projects are going to be in the short notes. And like I said, I was completely listening to your album before. Like when I was going to talk to you, I was like, let me listen to this album. And then there were songs that were actually resonating with me as someone who is, who is first gen. I was going, oh my God, I need to Google more about this. He's talking, what is he talking about here? And I, I found myself going down this history line with Malawi because <laughs> I was listening to the album because I'm that kid. And, um, and so I, I just appreciate you guys kind of giving us a little bit of insight and and I will make sure that folks get connected to your social media. So thank you. There's only one last thing I want to say, um, and that's simply that none of this works at all. None of these kind of moves work unless there's a solidity to the family. Um, it helps a lot that my wife and I are, I believe, in the kind of relationship that doesn't sit inside of um, patriarchal or conventional reality. We're, we're a team and we've always been a team and we make decisions together. We're the kind of family where if my son comes to me and says, dad, can I go out on Friday night? And I say, did you ask your mother? He goes, oh, forget it. She said no. So I know what you're going to say. If she said no, you're going to say no. You speak with one voice. And I think that anything is possible for a family if they work in a, uh, in a mindset where they see themselves as one and that all of the roles are flexible. You know, mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to be a patriarch or in that kind of headspace, when you move out into the world, it's going to get confusing. You got to be able to get each other's backs and listen mm -hmm. to each other because um, there's so many different things happening in the world that if you're not unified, moving from one place to another can be really daunting. Mm. I mean, I guess you're going to keep them. <laughs> when, he says, when, he, when he says stuff like that, I guess you're going to keep them till the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Almost 24 years. So oh, I mean, doing it right, you know? I mean, at this point, got to keep them anyway. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. The Global Chatter from the Black Expat is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is executive produced by Justin Williams. You can find all episodes of The Global Chatter on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.